0: It is Monday, February 8th, 2021. I'm Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man. This is the LDS Live podcast. This is the first time I've ever pre-pended a podcast, but I need to tell you something because we had some technical difficulties on Friday. So if you listen to this podcast, you're obviously going to hear me say it is Friday, February 5th, 2021. That was true. The reason for that is, is because I had to record this podcast in two parts to make it one after the first hour and 10 minutes i actually had to go back and record on sunday the end of the podcast i think it equaled out to be about 58 minutes or something like that so the last 58 minutes of this podcast was recorded on sunday now obviously you're not going to tell that i merged the two together but let me just tell you what's happening in case you hear a few glitches i hope you don't because I tried very hard to edit them out but if you do it's because Zoom keeps disconnecting after about an hour after about a half hour maybe even 20 minutes after about 20 minutes to a half hour it seems to want to disconnect and then it takes a while to connect i think it's because i'm on a bad connection here at my apartment complex even though The IT director swears that this is the best internet connection that he has. I don't think so. And it's not just because of that. It's because of other things, too. However, I tried my very best to not let you hear the glitches. So hopefully you do not hear them. But if you do, that's why. And that's why you're going to hear it is Friday, February 5th, 2021, is because that's the day that I recorded it. And then obviously... I had to come back in and record the finish part, the last half of the podcast on Sunday. So where you hear the part about Lehi and his family going to the coast of Florida, that's where it stops, and then I pick up again where he talks about the Phoenician voyage having its second voyage. That's part two. Obviously, I merged it into one. Another complaint that I want to address real quick. I have been hearing complaints. Oh, your podcasts are too long. Believe me, folks, I'm trying very hard to shorten them down. The problem is, is there's so much to discuss in these podcasts, I just don't want to make two parts out of the podcast separately because what happens is someone will listen to part two and forget that there's a part one, or someone will listen to part one and forget that there's a part two. So I think it's better if I merge everything together in one. Now, if I recorded a four hour podcast or something like that, then I would merge the two together. Or if I purposely recorded a podcast, let's say over two hours and 30 minutes, yeah, I'd merge, I would split those podcasts up. Here's the deal though this is a podcast. Let me remind you what a podcast is a podcast is. Something that you can listen to at your own leisure. This is not a live broadcast. This is a podcast. That means you can go listen to it on demand, whether it's live streaming or download it to your computer, your favorite audio playing device, smartphone, or whatever. And then if you get distracted or you think, oh, Kevin and Rod or Kevin or whoever I'm interviewing are giving me too much information, stop. Do something else and come back. I do this all the time with books. You can do the same thing with podcasts. I'm not trying to be mean. It's just that there's so much information, it's hard for me to know where to split up the podcast. So if you think this is going on too long, then just stop and do something else and come back, just like you would reading a book. All right, I hope you enjoy this podcast. This is Book of Mormon Evidence with Rod Neldrum. I'm very honored to have had this guest on. We had a wonderful interview. We talked a lot about the Lamanites blossoming like a rose, what that means. We talked about the ship, the voyage that Lehi and his family had from the wilderness to America and why he thinks, Rod Neldrum thinks, that they landed on the coast of Florida. We talked about a whole variety of other issues that I hope you listen to and enjoy. I really enjoyed making the podcast. It is Friday, February 5th, 2021. I'm Kevin Williams. This is the LDS Life Podcast, and I am Kevin Williams, Kevin the Blind Montana Man. How are you today, Rod? I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm not bad. I, uh, I've, I've been, uh, I feel honored to interview you. I, I thought it was good interviewing uh, Ammon and Jeanette, Ammon Bundy and Jeanette Finnegan, and it was, but this is really good. This is a treat. Who knows? Maybe <laughs> you and I can do this more often. Who knows? It uh, yeah, would that'd be, that'd be wonderful. Uh, yeah, a good friend of mine told me about you, and I wasn't sure if you'd come on the podcast because you're so well known in the church historical community. I didn't know if you were good enough for me, but uh, <laughs> you're here, and I'm glad to have you. This uh, Rod Meldrum is my guest, or Rod Meldrum. Um, Rod is the owner of a website called bookofmormonevidence.org. And there is a link in the show notes, bookofmormonevidence.org. You've got a lot on your website. You have firesides, you have events coming up. I'm, I think you have events that you can watch if, if you subscribe to the page, don't you? That's the impression I got anyway.
1: Yeah, we have, uh, well, this has been a, a long project. <laughs> I've been doing this now for, uh, well, actually started clear back when I was a kid. And my parents would uh, force me to get out of bed about uh, six o'clock in the morning and, and have scriptures every morning, and then that kept going. Basically, studying the Book of Mormon. But then, the uh, but this website basically became um, valid here about, uh, about twelve years ago, when we opened, when we started the website, and it now has blossomed into a, a pretty massive. Uh, in fact, probably the most information and, and research involving the Book of Mormon that there is online.
0: I know that uh, we, we've had, I don't want to get into this too much, we've had conversations off the podcast about some of the church historians. Would you consider yourself, or would they consider you a controversial figure in the Latter-day Saint community?
1: Uh, you yeah, know, <laughs> that's, that's a good question, Kevin. The, basically, the uh, when, when I first began doing this, I was actually um, working with a, a group of colleagues on a natural sciences textbook project, and had access to some of the top research libraries in the country. And so I, I uh, heard about actually my family, and I went up to the general conference in the spring of, of 2003. And there was a great big um, sign outside of the conference center, that says DNA proves the Book of Mormon is false. And uh, having had, uh, you know, other witnesses and so forth of, of the Book of Mormon, I thought, well, there's going to be answers to this. And then I began using my resources to look that up and, and found some interesting uh, evidences in favor of the Book of Mormon. And then I uh, actually uh, went to a couple of the apologetics communities in the, in the church and said, hey, I've got some research I think you would really uh, ought to take a look at. It's, uh, it, it's answers to some of the questions that, that a lot of people are having real you know, faith crises over, specifically the DNA question. And the response was something different than I thought. Um, I think that, I think to answer your question more directly, I think that they look at me as kind of a, um, as an outsider because I, I, I didn't go up, you know kind of go to BYU. I didn't you know, go up into that community, basically. But, uh, but the research that I've been uh, involved with has, has ended up becoming pretty um, wide, widely accepted and, and widespread.
0: Well, let's talk so, about the DNA. So is there, because I've heard that complaint over and over and over, there's no DNA evidence that the Book of Mormon exists. What did you find in your research?
1: Well, basically the, uh, the the controversy stems from the fact that when they sequenced DNA from Native American populations in North, Central and South America, they found that they were primarily Asiatic. In other words, the markers that are in their DNA link them to other Asiatic populations. And Lehi and his family weren't Asians. They were through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which makes them basically Hebrews or you know of, of, of Jewish, if you will, descent. Um, we obviously don't have a a genetic sample you know, from Lehi or Sarai or, or Ishmael or his wife, so we don't know exactly what we're looking for, but we can actually rule out uh, you know some populations. For example, we know that they weren't Asian. Uh, we know that they weren't uh, basically uh, black. You know, like uh, descendants from Ham. Um, we know that they were Hebrews. So, what evidence is there for a Hebrew population here in the Americas during the Book of Mormon timeframes? And that's where the controversy began, because when they sequenced the DNA from the Mayan kings, for example, they found that they were all Asian. They're Asiatic people. And in fact, if you take a look at the Mayan culture, uh, the Mayan glyph writing system, the Mayan temples, they match up pretty well with, uh, with peoples from Laos and Cambodia and from the Far East. Um, and that's what their DNA lines up with as well. So basically, we know that the Mayans had nothing to do with Hebrews. They were Asians. And if the Book of Mormon happened out in Central America, then that doesn't bode well for the Book of Mormon, you see. So, uh, so my research basically involved um, when it, when it, there was a uh, German reporter that was interviewing President Hinckley back in the 2002 Winter Olympics here in Salt Lake City, and he asked President Hinckley says, "What's going to be your church's position when DNA evidence shows that there's no connection? Basically, there's no evidence for your Book of Mormon." And President Hinckley kind of cut him off and said, "That hasn't been established yet. Nobody knows the answer to that yet, not at this point." And it turns out, back in 2002, that turned out to be a pretty prophetic statement, because in 2003, just a year later, articles began coming out in, in uh, mainstream genetics journals like you know, you know the uh, American Journal of Physical Anthropology and genetics, several different uh, genetics journals where they began sequencing the DNA from North American Indians of the Algonquin speaking language groups. And there's about 110 tribes that are involved involved in that language group. And they started finding that they had kind of interesting markers that are not found in Asian populations. In fact, when they looked at it, there's five specific markers and those five specific markers are found in every Jewish population around the planet. It's in the Ashkenazi Jews, which is the largest population of Jews. It's in the Sephardic Jews, the Libyan Jews, the Moroccan and Tunisian Jewish populations. They all have the same five markers as these Native Americans here in North America. And some of the tribes that have it, for example, are the Mi'kmaq, the, uh, the Potawatomis, the Penobscot, the, uh, the, the Sac and the Fox, um, the Ojibwe. And out here in the West, we're more familiar with the Sioux and the Cheyenne and the, uh, the Blackfoot tribes and they all have these same five markers but nobody seems to know how these five essentially Hebrew if you will markers um, ended up here in North American populations and that's where that's where you know this research came in because basically um, th- that, that that actually gives pretty strong evidence it's not it's not absolute evidence I mean in, in the genetics field you know there's not there's nothing that's you know, particularly absolute, but it does give at least a preponderance of evidence that there was, in fact, a Hebrew people that came from Jerusalem around 600 B.C. <laughs> does that make sense, Kevin? I'm,
0: I'm I think so. So let me ask you, though, what is the connection, do you think, with the Asianic people and the Hebrews that came over here? Because I do find that ratherly interesting. I think I have an idea, but I want your opinion first. Yeah.
1: Well, basically, Asiatic people, you know, came over, um, probably uh, they think that it came over the, the Bering Strait idea, you know, um, from Asia across from over, you know, top of basically uh, Alaska and down through Canada and down into the North America. And, um, and, and that's kind of the primary peoples. I mean, basically, there's, there's five different what they call uh, founding haplogroups or founding genetic types. In the Native American populations. Uh, for example, the lutes up in Alaska, they call them haplogroup A. Haplogroup B is in basically the southwestern part of the United States. That's like the Navajo and the, uh, the Paiute and the, uh, um, you know, some of the Hohokam and Shoshone, not Shoshone, but the other, other native groups in the southwestern part of the United States. And then haplogroup C and D are found throughout North and South America. And they're all Asian, all all of these haplogroups, A, B, C, and D are all Asiatic. And then they found this one that they didn't know exactly how it was gonna fit in. And they ended up calling it haplogroup X, kind of like X marks the spot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and this haplogroup X DNA is is the DNA type that has those five markers that link to Hebrew populations rather than Asiatic populations. But this, but these Hebrew, this haplogroup X is found primarily in the northeastern Indians, uh, Native American peoples, basically Native cultures of the uh, of North America, and uh, and that was that was a, a, a pretty amazing finding. So I started to want to share that with some of the apologetic groups within the church, like Farms and Fair at the time, and and, uh, and they um, have been. Um, proposing and uh, and promoting a, a central american setting for the book of mormon for many years and quite honestly they didn't really want to hear this new research
0: interesting why is that
1: because if this is correct then their their theories about the uh, the the ruins of guatemala and uh, southern mexico and uh, and you know belize and so forth that that has nothing to do with the Book of Mormon, and they've been promoting that now for over a hundred years.
0: Wow! So that let would... me ask you this, and I know some people are going to say, "Oh, uh, Kevin and Rod are racist," but this is my podcast. We can do whatever we want to on here. I'm not owned by anybody. Yeah. When well, the racist. Nephites <laughs> were separated from the Lamanites and their skin turned red. Do you uh-huh. think that that messed up the DNA? Because I've often wondered if that's true. Maybe it messed up the DNA, and we just don't know the link because maybe the skin color had something to do with DNA. What do you think?
1: Well, it's actually fairly simple to understand. Now, I, I am I'm fully of the belief that if God wants to change someone's DNA, that, you know, a couple of small tweaks on an allele here and there, um, or you know, would 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 be quite probably pretty simple <laughs> basically you know the, the 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 dna coding for skin coloration is a you know as a minuscule i mean little tiny tweak that all that would take um but this is basically my my personal thought is about it and that is that when you understand the jewish population the jewish civilization you understand that they were under certain um guidelines if you will culturally from that they received from the lord like for example, they were not to marry outside of their kindred, is the way that it's put in the in the Bible. Basically, yep. that's you know, Abraham and so forth. They had to go, you know, find you know wives from their kindred, right? Yeah. Um, they they were under a strict command not to intermarry with outside groups, outside peoples, and so when they arrived, when Laman and Lemuel and uh, Nephi and Sam and everybody arrived here in the promised land of America, um my personal feeling is is that basically the lamanites found the people that they're that were here already that were already established here in uh you know basically the uh, this would be the southern part of the united states around florida area they found those people to be beautiful i guess i mean you know whatever they, they found them to be acceptable for the lamanites to intermarry with them these people were would have been the asiatic people basically mongolian if you will and uh, so, as they w- w- begin to intermarry with this other people, um, the Mongolian population, basically, is Asiatic population. As you know, they have certain uh, genetic traits that make them, you know, uh, stand out. You know, they have specific genetic things that you can tell, you know, the difference between a, uh, you know, an Asian, a Caucasian, or a uh, or a, a black, you know, basically person, just from some of the, some of their genetic traits. Well, dark hair, dark eyes, and dark skin is one of the things that is common for Mongolian or Asiatic populations like that, and uh, and and because those those particular traits are genetically dominant, um, you know, as as we know, typically, I mean, if you have a, uh, a Caucasian and a black person uh, that that in, that marry and intermarry, their children will have a higher tendency to show. The dark hair, dark eyes, and dark skin, um, because that's genetically dominant over, you know, blonde and blue hair, blue eyes, and and white skin. So, the, so there's going to be a genetic preponderance of showing that. So I think what would happen is basically is that as the Lamanites intermarried with this other uh, population that was already here, by doing so, they their their children would uh, would be distinguishable because they would have the, the, the genetic traits of the other population as well as the Lamanite and, and the, you know, the Laman and Lemuel's families. Okay. So, so even in the first generation, a person who would consider themselves to be a Nephite who was not intermarrying with this outside culture, which, again, was, was commanded that they don't do that. In fact, the Nephites were commanded not even to intermarry with their own brethren <laughs> you know, for, for reasons. Uh, For for belief reasons, but basically, um, as the Lamanites intermarried with this other population, their children would show up in the first generation, they would be distinguishably different because they would have Asiatic features, rather than, you know, uh, fully uh, Hebrew features. Yeah, so so they, they could be distinguished by sight, which is pretty clear in the Book of Mormon that that was one of the key factors. Um, that they were not to intermarry with them, um, you know, for that reason.
0: Yeah, so let me ask you this. Uh, do you think the Asian people were the Jaredites that came here before the Lamanites and Nephi and all those folks?
1: Um, personally, I, I don't think so. I think that the uh, that there's, there's been some evidence, actually, that the Jaredites may have been Black. Um, there's some genetic features on the uh, on the adena culture that we think are are potentially are the the most uh, likely candidate population to be the jaredites um the other the other reason is is the jaredites basically according to the book of mormon account essentially extinguished themselves they had you know a war of annihilation of everybody so there really wasn't a lot of them probably around that there may have been stragglers or people who didn't show up at the war or whatever um, but the, but at least according to the Book of Mormon account, they fought down to one guy, which isn't going to leave much of a genetic signature on the promised land. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah.
0: So, so I uh, think the
1: Asiatic people are, are a separate culture that came over from Asia, obviously.
0: So where do you think, though, the Asiatic people came from, though, uh, from Asia? And how did they get here?
1: Well, basically, that stems all the way back from if you go all the way back, all the way back to Adam and Eve, where was the Garden of Eden?
0: Missouri.
1: We've had prophets and apostles and so forth who said that it was in in Missouri. So when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, they would have found themselves in what today is essentially the heartland of America, mm-hmm. right, in, in Missouri. Um, the promise, but basically this is actually the first promised land also. If you look in the, the Pearl of Great Price in Moses. It says that the first promised land was named after adam's great-grandson whose name was canaan and the promise was as long as you're as long as you're righteous you can remain on this promised land but if you ever become unrighteous then you're going to get the broom treatment you're going to get swept off and uh and and so we get down to basically noah's time frame adam and eve and their posterity were here in america and, uh, and then you get down to Noah's time frame. Now, also, we, we also know that this was in America because just three years before Adam died, he was like 927 years old. And he called all of his posterity together at this place called Adam on the Ammon. And there he gave them a special blessing. Which means that for almost 927 years, Adam and his posterity never left the area. Around Missouri, because we know where Adam and Eve is, and we know that by revelation and not speculation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so if that's if 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 that's where Adam called all of his righteous posterity together, then we know that that's where they were um, at the time. And then, right, you know, so then shortly after that, you have um, the people become you know, wicked, and basically, God cleanses the earth with a worldwide flood. And Noah builds a massive ark. They invite anybody who wants to join with them into the ark, um, except nobody, for the unicorn. Except for the unicorn. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> well, they're, they're, the unicorns and other and all the rest of the people all rejected you know the offer. <laughs> to come on the ark, and so uh, when the when the when Noah's flood happened, um, they were all wiped out. And and Noah basically we know had three sons. So I'm getting now to the, to the answer to your question here. So basically those three sons were Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham was married to Egyptus and according to the biblical account, Egyptus was a descendant of Cain. And this is how the, the uh, black race, if you will, basically made it through the flood. Um, Japheth was blessed by Noah that his seed would exceed all. And they became the Asiatic peoples of the earth. And they went up into the the the, what is now known as Asia. And then Shem, was the was the one who received the priesthood lineage from Noah, and it was through his posterity that it was promised that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be, um, you know, descendants of, of Shem. Yeah. So those are the three primary, if you will, races of the earth. Um, basically, they if you want to put a name on, basically, black, Caucasian, and Asiatics. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and and they basically took in three different areas of the earth uh, ham went down into what is now egypt and, and africa and that area um, then sham was basically there in the uh, in the saudi arabian area and then japheth went up into asia and they became the three main groups so that's why it's easy to tell genetically the difference between um, these three primary primary groups it's interesting that there's three different kind of blood types there's you know, <laughs> there's, there's subgroups of each one of these, and there's, in, and there's been lots of interactions and intermarrying and so forth, um, uh, um, of these different groups, but, but those were the three primary ones. So the Asiatic people basically, um, they developed into, obviously there's more Asians on the planet than there is any other of the, of the other two of Shem and Ham. Um, and they, uh that's, you know, they they were explorers and so forth. I mean, you know, the Chinese had the uh, had a navy that was uh, was second to nobody. I mean, they had the, the most powerful navy in the world way back anciently, and they basically uh, came here to America and began to set up shop. So that's where basically I think that these uh, you know the the Asiatic populations of the haplogroups A, B, C, and D that's where they stem from, but they're very different. They, they have different markers, and you can tell, uh, you can actually trace them back, you know, to, um, you know, to Asiatic, to you know, to people from Asia. But that's different than the than the markers that in the haplogroup X DNA type. This, this is the Algonquin-speaking language groups that I was mentioning before, and they, they have the DNA type. And to me, Kevin, one of the most important things is, you now we have this prophet by the name of Joseph Smith that was the leader of this dispensation. Yep. And he was commanded, and you can read all about this in the Doctrine and Covenants itself, the revelations given to Joseph Smith by the Lord in sections 28 and 30 and 32. And in those sections the Lord commanded Joseph Smith to send missionaries unto the Lamanites. Now, I got to I got to ask you and your listeners a question. How many of you believe that the Lord knows who the Lamanites are and where they're located today?
0: Absolutely, <laughs> I do. Now, I, I want to ask you a question though, and I don't mean to this is something that has always bothered me. We are taught that the yeah. Lamanites will will be <laughs> will blossom like a rose. Yes. However, have you spent any time at an Indian reservation lately? <laughs>
1: Um, Not lately, but I have spent quite a bit of time on uh, several different Indian reservations. Well,
0: I went to an Indian reservation back in 2003, and Uh this was up in Canada. I had a very interesting experience, but let me just sum it up by this. There is a lot of drugs and alcohol there, and I could tell that people were on drugs and alcohol without even being able to see just the way they talked and the way their speech was. It yep. was obvious. I went into a guy's house. who uh, The church used to send out these videos. That they would air on commercials. You, you probably have seen them. I didn't even know about these commercials until I went to Canada. Mm-hmm. We had to deliver a video. And let me tell you, this guy's house on the reservation reeked with alcohol. It was bad. Yeah. And there is a ton of alcohol being distributed amongst the Native Americans. I can tell you from experience... Yeah. So I hate to say this, I take issue with that scripture because I'm not seeing any of this going on. Are you? I don't even know what that, I don't even know what blossoming like a rose means if we're having this issue in the Native <laughs> American community.
1: Well, that me, if you can, uh, let me give you a couple of uh, ideas to consider and, uh, and, and the, the, the first thing basically is if, we, if we're going to know who it is that's supposed to be blossoming we need to know who which which population is it that should be doing the blossoming correct yes so if that's the case then kind of going back to Joseph Smith for just a second when he sent those first missionaries to the Lamanites and it and the Lord used the term Lamanites in every one of those revelations and again in, in sections 28 30 and 32 probably P pratt um, Ziba Peterson, uh, Oliver Cowdery, and, and uh, uh, anyway, there's four of them <laughs> basically that went, that went, that um, literally took the very first copies of the Book of Mormon and given a charge by Joseph Smith and the Lord to take the copy of the Book of Mormon, these copies, and take it to these specific tribes in New York, Ohio, and Missouri, and and Joseph Smith said, you give it to them and you tell them this is the history of their ancestors well what what tribes did they go to see there's actually four different tribes uh today when we sequenced well first off uh parley p pratt actually named the tribes that they went to go see um and that was later on in his autobiography and so we actually i I looked up those particular tribes genetically and every single one of those tribes happened to fall into the haplogroup x dna type that is uh, in every jewish population now how did joseph smith know that was just a lucky guess apparently but uh but bottom line is so so when when these these if these are the people then that we are talking about then have they blossomed is the real question that not, not just not just any people because there's the, the church has blossomed all over the world right um yes. but uh, but that but that doesn't make everybody around the world lamanites so who is specifically the lamanites that are supposed to blossom as the roads Now, um, Elder um, Larry Echohawk, who is a Native American, he's a uh, he, and he also, by the way, is uh, part of one of these uh, haplogroup X
0: DNA. He was a Democrat, by the way, but we won't hold it against him. I think he was actually more of a conservative Democrat. I was in Idaho when he was Attorney General. Carry on.
1: Exactly, and he's just a really, just an incredibly uh, nice guy. But he was also the head of the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs.
0: Yes, he was
1: had uh, 15,000 employees, I think, at one point in time in the BIA. And he was quite beloved, actually, by the Native American people because he really did fight for their rights and so forth. But, but the bottom line is, is that he gave a talk when he first became a general authority, when he was first uh, you know, set apart as a general authority. Um, he gave a, a talk in general conference. And in that talk, he says, we will all be instrumental in bringing to pass the mighty promises of this blossoming. Which and, and he told me personally that, that, that his talk was, was, re, was uh, reviewed by all three members of the first president, well, all four members of the first presidency, okay,
0: yeah,
1: um, and, and, and basically, and uh, that because of that, he knew that his, his talk had been actually gone over, and it said in future tense that these promises were going to happen. Now, that was just back in 2012 or 13, which means that the that the blossoming apparently hadn't happened, at least until that point. Now, let me go back to another couple of things. The Native American tribes that were in the Midwestern part of the United States at the time of the, uh, the arrival of the Europeans, okay, um, those tribes, basically, um, all of them were removed off of their lands um, by the you know the Indian injury, injury removal program, and we all know about the Trail of Tears and so forth. Um, that those those Native American people that were in the Ohio River Valley and the Mississippi River Valley were forever moved off of their lands. The prophecy is that they would be scattered, smitten, and nearly destroyed. So they have literally been scattered, smitten, and nearly destroyed. The Native American populations have been decimated by the uh, by the the sicknesses that came, came across with the early explorers and so forth, as well as uh, just, you know, poverty and, and everything else. Like you mentioned about up in Canada, how they, you know, have this uh, uh, propensity to, well, but basically it's like any, almost any people, when you take away their liberty, when you take away their ability to, to uh, um, do for themselves and they become dependent on other people like the government or whatever, Yeah. Um, it, it, it causes people to become, you know, basically desperate. I mean, they, you know, they um, they lose their will to to succeed or to do anything with their lives, and that's where alcoholism and drug abuse and so forth comes into play. But back to the back to this for one last thing, one last minute for Kevin. Um, so, the, so where's this blossoming taking place? Most of these tribes. Now you have to understand when the, when the Europeans first got over here. And they went and they first met with the Mi'kmaq and the Sac and the Fox and the, uh, and the Ojibwe and the Oneidas and, the, uh, you know, and all these other tribes in the northeastern part of the United States. They found those people to be quite beautiful. In fact, uh, there was a lot of intermarrying that went on between them. Um, you know, I mean, you know, obviously, like Pocahontas is a, is a pretty, pretty good example, right?
0: Not Elizabeth Warren, by the
1: way. Yeah, not, not her own. She's <laughs> broken on us, but but but, uh, but bottom line is is that um, they the, these people were tall, um, well built. I mean, you know, strong, muscled people, um, and and many of them even had the you know, lighter um, like hair color and so forth. Occasionally, they would find those. Um, but bottom line is is that they would intermarry with the Native American people very easily, and in fact, if you know. Have you ever heard of the term uh, hillbillies?
0: Oh, yes, very much so.
1: Yeah, that, 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 a lot of people don't know where that term comes from. But because the Native American people were so beautiful to the Europeans that were coming over, they would intermarry with them. And then when they find out um, that there was this Indian Removal Act, they would basically have to take their families because they in, in, intermarried and had children now with these Native American uh, you know, people and, um, and they would have to basically go and hide out in the hills. So they would, they would, they would uh, take off with their families and hide up in the hills, basically, you know, in the, uh, the Ozarks and other mountains there in the southeastern part of the United States, the Blue Ridge Mountains and that. And that's where they would go and hide out. And they said it was, they, were, they were so hard to find, they were like billy goats. And so they oh. called them hill, hillbillies because okay. they could go anywhere up in those mountains and hide out, and they couldn't find them. And they did this because they had intermarried um, you know, with Native American people who were now supposed to be exiled, and instead, um, they loved them, and they wanted to remain as family, so they, they would hide, and that's why they called them hillbillies. But, there's, but there was a massive amount, there's a lot more than people think of, uh, of intermarrying so an, an average population today in America, there is a high level of, of Native American blood in most people. In fact, I, I didn't know this myself, but uh, I, I have the, when I got my DNA tested, um, my ancestry is all from Scotland and England, as far as I knew, but on both sides of my family, as far back as we could trace, and yet when I got my DNA tested and came back, I've got Native American blood. I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, somebody uh, had, had married into an Indian at some point in time. And okay. it turns out it was a grand grand uh sacum basically it's uh, uh as I you can go into family search and you can look for famous people or whatever that you're related to and uh and I've got he's my ninth great grandfather.
0: Interesting. So these people that uh, were in Canada, and it's all over the yeah. place. The Ute Indians are notorious yeah. for alcoholism. I'm not saying every Ute Indian. Don't
1: yeah, yeah, get defensive
0: with me, folks. But <laughs> it, it's true. You go on these Indian reservations. Yeah. Alcohol, drugs, all over the place. I'm sure that yeah. there are people on the reservations that don't do any of that. I'm just saying stereotypically, that's what yeah. you're going to see. That's bad,
1: yeah. But then, but let me ask you a question now, Kevin, and that is that if, um, if, if if the Native American people are to be judged basically by those who are on reservations, what percentage of the Native American people that started off way back when are today on reservations?
0: It's I have like no idea. Tiny,
1: it's a tiny percent. Most Native Americans, at least the northeastern tribes. Assimilated into the into the the uh, pilgrims and, and the, basically the white culture, if you will, you know the uh, the European culture, and they assimilated into these you know into this culture. So they are us <laughs> to a, to a large extent, way more than we think. There's been uh, some you know like 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 I said, the, most of these reservations you're talking about here, like the, you know, if you go down to Arizona or up into Canada. Most of those people are um, the Asiatics, the Asiatic populations like the Navajo and the, let and see, and the, the, the Navajo have about 6% of their population have the haplogroup X. This makes them about 94% Asian um, as far as their ancestral heritage. Yeah. So, uh, so, th- so, so the blossoming is going to happen with the Lamanites if these people aren't the primary lamanites they have some lamanite blood in them because if there must have been some intermediate people have pointed to uh, the populations basically of Mexico and Guatemala and so forth as the as the place because i mean you know, i mean look at how many baptisms they've had uh, my yeah. son Logan actually served his mission in tampico mexico and uh, and and they They did have a lot of baptisms. There's been a lot of baptizing, but this is a a kind of a trick question for you and your listeners. Um, What nation is it that has the most total baptisms today?
0: I would say Chile. I could be wrong, but that's my guess.
1: We're talking about just total baptisms. Talk. So yeah, so most most people guess Mexico or or, or Chile or you know Central Argentina. America someplace. Argentina. Actually, it's the same nation that has always been the highest baptizing nation in the world every single year since the day of its in, in, since the day of the church's inception. What nation is that? America. The United States of America. Really. The United States of America is by far and away the highest baptizing nation on the earth. I don't know how it is that we have this idea that basically that uh, that, that that you know these these that's been eclipsed by Mexico and so forth. But if you take the next two largest baptizing nations in the in the world, their their baptisms combined don't usually equal what is baptized. With the number of baptized baptisms in the United States of America. These are new convert baptisms, not just, uh, these are not, you know, baby blessings.
0: So, here's a question, though. I don't want to get too off topic. Yeah. But, we know in the United States, church membership is dwindling, and it isn't just the LDS church, it's church membership in general. We've got people leaving like flies.
1: Yeah, Christianity, in fact, all religions are to some extent stuff suffering in the United States as as we turn our, our backs on God. But yeah.
0: Okay, so could it be that the retention rate is low in the United States, but maybe it's higher in Mexico and the South American countries?
1: Okay. Actually, there's a uh, there's been a number of studies that have been done on this, and actually, there's one that's called Camora. Uh, I think it's Camora.com. They do a lot of the research on that. Uh it turns out. Actually, Kevin, that the retention rate in Mexico and, and Central America and Guatemala are so dismal. Um, I, for example, my son Logan, uh, when he was in Tampico, when he first arrived there on his mission, they, he was, he was uh, put into a, a ward that had on the rolls about 530 members. There were about 40 active members coming each week back then. This is probably about uh, six or seven years ago. Wow. I don't know if people know this, but there was there was eleven uh, stakes that were all discontinued simultaneously about three years ago. With fifty-three some, fifty-three or fifty-four wards, and eleven stakes um, were just dissolved because there's not enough members to keep them going. They baptize into the church in great numbers, but the retention rate is is actually. Um, just horrific. In fact, the United States has the highest retention rate of baptized members of the church of any other nation as well. Um, so I guess what my point is basically is people point to Central and South America as the blossoming. Um, if that's what a blossoming is, it's not a much of a blossoming. <laughs> Actually, what I'm saying is is basically I think that the, the populations, of Native Americans who are the Lamanites, according to what the Lord told Joseph Smith in those revelations. If they are the Northeastern tribes, those tribes are not typically on reservations. Most of the people that I know that are those tribes are just regular Americans just living their lives. And uh, and, and 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 there are a lot of, uh, of, of people like that, basically, that you would not know that they're that they're Native American, unless you basically ask them a lot of times. Um, just like, uh, uh, what's her name, <laughs> you know? Yeah.
0: So what do you think <laughs> will happen to these Native Americans that I saw in Canada that, j- that just was infested with alcohol? Yeah.
1: Well, they have, they have interestingly, that's another uh, kind of a feature of, um, of the genetics of Hebrews. Uh, the Hebrew populations have a high propensity for example for diabetes Type 2 diabetes is rampant in, uh, in, in Jewish populations and it's also rampant in Native American populations because they are related with each other oh. um, Also uh, you know, alcoholism and so forth is uh, you know is, like you said that, that those are typically cultural issues uh, I think personally stemming from, um, they're being subjugated and put under government control, and there's so much corruption in the in the uh, the government situation. Not, not only the government's basically providing to the Native American populations, but also within the Native American uh, you know cultural their, their their governments as well. There's massive waste and fraud and so forth that goes on there. The people don't see very much of the money, but there's literally you know. Billions of dollars are spent every year, um, you know, on these uh, on, on on these these folks and their and their reservations and so forth. But they they just don't seem to, you know, uh, live a very very good life. I mean, you know, basically, it's 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 pretty um, sad actually how most of these folks are living in these on these reservations.
0: So. Do you think maybe so? It sounds like, based on our conversation and what you've read, the Lamanites in the northeastern United States would probably be the ones to prosper more or blossom like a rose as opposed to out here in yeah. the Intermountain West,
1: yeah? And, and if you take a look at um, you know, how you know the businesses and things like that that have gone on with them, um, now when I say that prosper. I mean, for example, the, uh, the, the Sioux and the Cheyenne and the Blackfoot and, and tribes out here in the West are actually, uh, tribes that were kind of nomadic and left the, the Northeastern part of the United States and then came out here to the West. Um, you can tell that they're, they're quite a bit different than the, uh, than the, than the Asiatic populations of like the, the Hopi and the, the, uh, you know, the, the Navajo and, uh, you know, those groups like that. But but bottom line is, is that have they blossomed? And I think the answer is, is not yet. I think the blossoming is still, to some extent, going to happen. But uh, there is a lot of members of the church, uh, I think if they knew um, their their DNA or their ancestral history, I think you'd be surprised how many of the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have native american ancestry and don't even know it interesting Just so
0: myself i keep coming back to this issue i have in canada what do you think will happen to this these people on the reservations in canada that i ran into any idea
1: um well as, as long as they are under the subjugation of their government basically i think that this is going to continue on that in fact it's uh I hate to, I mean, it sounds like a conspiracy theory or something, but, uh, I, I don't think that the governments really want these people to succeed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, they, they, they,
1: they keep them bound down, um, with, you know, with giving, giving them free stuff. And the problem with free stuff is that somebody always ends up, um, basically getting, uh, subjugated by free
0: stuff. Absolutely. Which,
1: this is, this is how it works in the real world. But, you know, we have so many kids nowadays that want to have free stuff, right? They want to have free yep. education, free free cell phones and free this and free that, free housing, free food. Um, the problem with free stuff is that somebody else is going to be paying for it. And that whoever that somebody else basically then controls them. Absolutely. And, uh, so, so when you have free stuff, it's kind of like the, uh, the children of Israel in Egypt. You know, they were getting uh, free stuff for a while. And then after a while, then people go, you know what? I'm sick and tired of you having free stuff. You got to start paying for it. This is how drug dealers work. On my mission, I had a uh, young man that was hooked on heroin. And his family had sold three homes um, and and given all the money over to the drug dealers, basically. The the way that they would do it, they'd give them free drugs for a while until they get them hooked on the free drugs. And then they say, well, you can't just keep getting free stuff. You have to start paying for it, and then they charge them extraordinary amounts of money, and uh, and and they and they have to go out and basically start stealing stuff and whatever to try to make enough money to pay off their drug habit, and that's how they get them basically hooked on drugs. And that's how they get. That's how you get people hooked on, um, you know, being reliant on the government or other people instead of reliant on themselves and the Lord.
0: Yeah. Well, I can tell you personal stories being blind. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. We can go. Let me ask you this though about the Native American culture. We're gonna to have to do a part two, because I hadn't even covered what I wanted to cover, but I think this is very important. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Are Native American women opinionated? And the reason I ask is because I took a trip Let's, I was writing from Malad Idaho I believe is what it was uh-huh. to Pocatello. okay with a husband and wife couple, the husband was a good friend of mine. This is back in 1998. Uh-huh. No 1999. This is back in March the middle of March of 1999. I can't remember exactly when it was. I'd have to look at my calendar okay but It was at the at the middle of March of 1999. May have been before, after St. Patrick's Day. I can't remember, but we were talking. This husband, this wife's husband, and I were talking about a person who started his own anti-government compound up in northern Idaho. At least that's how it was portrayed in the media. Uh-huh. Uh, after reading about it, we, I'm is not sure. So weaver.
1: Um, what's that? Was uh, was it, Randy Weaver? No, it was Bo Grice. Oh, Bo Grice. Okay, yeah.
0: And so uh, we were, I, I asked this guy, because he worked with blind people, and he was a teacher of blind people. I said, when are you going to get me this book? Because he, he wrote a book called I Am My Brother's Keeper. And no, I'm not going to put a note in the link in the show notes. Go out and find it on your own. <laughs> but I put it there. I, I asked him, because we were talking about it, and he said he'd give me a copy. I just wanted to see what was written in this book. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, his wife just dropped the hammer on me. My gosh, she said, Kevin, what is the 13th article of faith? And I recited it, and I think it was the 13th, whatever we believe in honor and obeying and sustaining the law, whatever that one is. Right. Uh-huh. And she said, So why are you even interested in this Bo Grite's character? If he's been having this anti government compound up in Northern Idaho, I was dumbfounded. I didn't know what to tell her because so I never thought about it. I just, knew that this guy ran for president in 92, and yep. then we were talking about coffee because I was a bit of a renegade back then, and so was he, and we were talking about some good coffee shops that I should try out that night in Pocatello. By the way, we didn't go to any because we were too busy doing other things. <laughs> she just <laughs> dropped the hammer on the word of wisdom and how she wished her wished her husband to quit drinking coffee, and her husband's a great man, but Oh, it'd be nice if she quit drinking coffee and how I'm not helping them. Is this a characteristic with Native American women? Because I asked this guy <laughs> the second day of my trip when him and I were alone, we, him and I went to Sun Valley together with a whole bunch of people. Uh-huh. And I said, your wife's awfully opinionated, isn't she? Because I was getting annoyed by her. Uh-huh. And she said, "Oh yeah, she keeps me on the straight and narrow. Most Native American women are into, are very opinionated. But if you marry a Native American woman, they'll stick to you like glue." And is any of this true? Are they very opinionated, or, or what?
1: Well, I'd, I'd hate to be the one to try to uh, paint uh, Native American women uh, with a broad brush like that. I think that they are probably about as diverse as any other population of, uh, of, of women <laughs> out there in the world. Um, I, although I will have to say that, I mean, I, I do have uh, a number of friends who are Native American and, uh, and of the female persuasion, and, uh, and basically um, I have found them to be um, just wonderful, um, deeply spiritual as a, as a general rule. I, I, I would almost say that uh, may, many Native American people are more spiritually minded than other populations, I guess I would say, um, I, I I don't know that they're more so than other, you know, as far as opinionated and that kind of thing, but uh, that a lot of the Native American women are, um, by culture, are to some extent, um, uh, you know, kind of quieter, I guess. But actually, the Native American culture is an interesting. Uh, culture because it like actually this woman
0: was not quiet but carry on <laughs> yeah.
1: but but actually uh the way that a lot of native american cultures and and, and we're kind of also painting a broad brush because native american cultures also themselves range uh tremendously as far as how their culture actually goes about doing things but many of the east coast uh native american cultures actually the the women even though there was a chief the uh, the chief was pretty much um Watched over and and had to comply to the uh, the 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 um, founding mothers, basically the, the the tribal mothers, and they had uh, you know female organizations basically. And if the chief didn't do what the uh, what the what the tribal mothers you know wanted to have him do, he was out. You know they they throw him out. Really? <laughs> so, oh yeah, they they're quite uh, matriarchal actually. Uh, probably more so than many others so would you say that
0: this Native American woman was an exception to the rule um I don't know about an exception I think I've, I've had both
1: I mean I've had very opinionated people um you know and also very quiet um just like any other people I think that they they range from from uh you know the the gamut basically the gambit hmm interesting uh, yeah that's interesting yeah so so, so back to the, the, the Canadian Native Americans yeah. that you saw. Yep. Um, most of them are actually part of these uh, this Algonquin group as well. There's uh, 500 nations in, the, in the, uh, the, the country of Canada. 500, uh, I should say, Native American na- nations. Okay. And they are very diverse. I mean, if, if you go to the ones over by Montreal, uh versus the ones that are up in the far northwestern reaches of Canada versus those who are basically uh, you know in the south southwestern part of Canada um, their cultures their their mannerisms their uh, they you know that they're really quite different oh. I, I, I remember I remember I was I was speaking to a group this is kind of an interesting little side note here for just a second but uh, I was asked to come and speak to a group of of Native Americans up uh, up off of the uh, the Saint Lawrence Seaway, and uh, they were um, part of the um, oh gosh the tribe over there that's the uh, the, the uh, Mohawk tribe. Okay. Oh yeah. There, there's there's five there's there's five civilized tribes. They call them the five civilized tribes. Basically, uh, we in New York. You know, from the Oneidas to the uh, the Senecas to anyway, the Mohawks were basically the eastern door of the, of, of the um, uh, oh gosh, no, it's not escaping me here. Um, they're part of this overall group. It's not the Ojibwe's it's the, uh, uh, anyway. <laughs> so, but basically the, the five, these, they, they call them the five civilized tribes anyway, but, but they basically the Mohawks there. Um, so there's about 60 people in the room and I was uh, got up to give my presentation. I started off my talk basically, by asking them, um, what is your uh, what is your creation story? You know, where did you come from? Half of them basically said the, uh, the there was the the Catholic half, and then the longhouse or the traditional half. Yeah. The Catholic Mohawks basically said we came by by boat. We came by ships from the east, and we came here and we found it to be a wonderful land and we stayed here. Oh. The the same tribe. Okay, that I'm talking to here, uh, you know, up in the uh, the northeastern part of the United States, up on the Saint Lawrence Seaway, um, and the same the same tribe, the people of the Longhouse, basically said, "This is where Creator placed us, and we've never left." Oh, so wow. that that is our creation story: is that we've always been here. So we have. Two, you know, two completely different origin stories, even though they're sitting in the same room and from the same tribe. Interesting. Yeah, it was. It was. It was quite, quite astounding, actually.
0: So you think uh, this, this reserva- these people on the reservations I ran up, I ran into in Nova Scotia, Canada, mm-hmm. you think that the chances of them converting to the gospel would be very high? If they only knew their heritage and if the government quit bringing them free things all the time.
1: Well, basically, according to the prophecy, it said that they that the blossom is going to only happen when they know who they are. Well, how mm-hmm. are they going to know who they are? How are they going to know that they are the covenant people of God? How are they going to know that they are the remnants of this great civilization that occupied the heartland of America? Uh, back in Book of Mormon timeframes. Yeah. There's only really, there's only a couple ways they could know. Number one is by their own traditions. And actually many of their traditions actually do, um, you know, many of these people know that they come from the Hopewell Mound Builder people because they've been and, and genetically, when they sequenced the DNA from the Hopewell Mound Builder people, uh, these Native American tribes in the Northeastern part of the United States are in fact those people. So we know that that's, the, the these uh, these current tribes today are descendants from the people who were originally there in Ohio and, and Missouri and uh, you know and Illinois and and uh, all the way over into uh, you know Iowa. But uh, But then, but now, you know, those populations basically are all over. They they've intermarried all over the world. I mean, well, all over the United States for sure. And then okay. and there was something else I was going to mention there, but now I'm, I'm trying to remember what it was.
0: Well, but while you're thinking about that, did do you think the Pocatello Indians, Blackfoots, Utes, Cheyenne, do you think that they were uh, in the Northeast and migrated over to the Intermountain West? Or what do you think happened to them?
1: Yeah, well, basically, they're part of the Algonquin speaking language groups. When I say that, there's the, there was a language group called uh, Algonquin, they have... They over the course of centuries, many centuries, they broke into subgroups. So they each, they, they, some of them have their own actual language, but they're all related to each other linguistically. That's what they call the Algonquin language groups. And so, um, so you, you mentioned several tribes there: the Blackfoot, the Sioux, the Cheyenne. Um, they are all part of the Algonquin group. I think you mentioned one other group:
0: Pocatillo and the Ute.
1: Yeah, the youths, Navajos, the, the youths are part, yeah. the, the youths are not uh, part of that. The youths are part of the uh, the, the group that basically also belongs with the Navajo and the uh, um, I'm just drawing a blank on some other ones, but basically they are the southwestern Indians that have been here from, from, from like from the Hohokam and the uh, um, other you know the Hopis and so forth. So. so- and, and okay. you can actually see that, you can kind of see this, um, you know, we I, at the beginning of this, we were kind of talking about some different uh, uh, features, basically, that different populations have. And, and if you take a look, for example, at Navajo, um, one of their features is, for, you know, for, you can just look at facial features, for example. I mean, you can tell pretty quickly if someone's a Navajo because of the very round you know, they call it moon moon shaped faces. You know they have very round faces, whereas uh, whereas you know most uh, Caucasians have very long faces. You know kind of you know the axis from the top to the bottom is longer than from side to side. Mm-hmm. Um, when you take a look at the, the Native American peoples, for example, like the um, also just physical stature. You know most Navajo people are not really very tall. They're they're, they're they're smaller but they're powerfully built i mean in other words they have pretty wide shoulders and and uh, you know you know good you know strong Wouldn't muscular mess with one in a fight yeah exactly but they tend not to get much more than about uh, you know five and a half to maybe some of the men might get up to six feet tall but it's pretty rare um whereas on the other hand if you take a look at the Blackfoot, of the cheyenne or the sioux native american people they regularly are over six feet tall wow like, a lot of the men are you know six one six two six three um and, and their women are tall they're kind of more more of a slender build not quite as hip not as, as muscular typically as the uh, as the asiatic you know uh, peoples um and, and and part of the reason for that is because they are not asian <laughs> they're they're basically hebrews they're mm-hmm if you will, Caucasians. They come you know, from the lineage of uh, Shem. And that makes them basically some of the covenant people of God as well. And now, now when I say covenant people of God, I want people to understand there's no racism here going on. This is no. basically has to do with what God set up. And no. basically, um, Abraham was direct descendant of, of Shem. And it was through Abraham, he says, through thy seed, Abraham, shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed, even with the blessings of the gospel. So it was Abraham's charge, if you will, to take the gospel using the priesthood that he was given through Shem and and, and all the way back to Noah and all the way back to Adam, um, that they were to use that priesthood to bless all of the other children of God. That means that all of the the, the black population, all of the, uh, you know, the, Asiatic populations and so forth, they were to use that priesthood to bless all of God's children with the blessings of the gospel. And that's the charge.
0: Interesting. So, yeah, okay. So, you think though that uh, Lehi and Nephi and that crowd is uh, the part of the Asianic, Asianic uh, people then?
1: No. They're not Lehi and Lehi and Zeruya and those guys. They were all Israelites. They came through the lineage of Joseph of Egypt and so forth. That's, yeah. that's that's all part of the Israelites, which makes them from the descendants of Shem, and not the descendants of Japheth. So this this is the this is the reason why this is such a kind of confusing thing, because the vast majority of Native American populations in North Central and South America are Asian. There's only this small smattering of, uh, of, of peoples basically in the northeastern part of the United States that, uh, that has the DNA that links them to um, Caucasian populations or Hebrew populations. And that's what wow. the Book of Mormon is about. They're talking about a Hebrew population that came here to America. And then they. And another thing that's kind of an interesting aspect, um, those who have advocated for a Central American setting for the Book of Mormon, Basically, um, have tried to address the DNA issue by saying, "Well, what happened was, was when Lehi and his family arrived here in uh, in America, and they're specifically talking about down in Central America. Um, we know that the Mayan civilization was already well established, and uh, and 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 they were just rolling along when Lehi arrived and his family. They were already well, you know." They, they're, they're already in, in, in populations of, uh, you know, of hundreds of thousands at that point in time. So Lehi basically shows up in Central America. Um, he basically, he and his family just assimilate into the Mayan overall population. And that's the reason why there's no DNA evidence for the Book of Mormons because the assimilation caused the DNA to become so um, uh, diluted, basically, that it's not traceable today. The only problem with that is, Kevin, is that that doesn't follow in any way, shape, or form the actual storyline of the Book of Mormon, <laughs> which basically yeah. says that you know, Nephi and those that would follow him left Laman and Lemuel and those who uh, were trying to kill Nephi and his brethren, and they left and they went up into the land of Nephi. There was no indication there were any other people there. They didn't have to fight their way in or have any battles with anyone, apparently, when they, when they went up and established the land of Nephi. They made Nephi the king. Um, if if this was going on in Central America, why would a population, say 100,000 people, you have 60, 70 people show up one day on the shore, and all of a sudden they decide to make one guy their king from the from that 60 or 70 people? They're going to make him the king over 100,000 people? Yeah. And not only that, but they have these weird cultures, cultural things that these that these people have, these Hebrews, yeah, you know, I mean, can you imagine uh, Laman and Lamuel and, and, uh, and, and Nephi and Sam and so forth, they show up there and, and there's all these Mayans standing there and they go, okay, so all of you guys, I mean, there's only 60 of us, there's 100,000 of you, but we're going to subjugate you and, and then we're going to make you live the laws of Moses, which, by the way, all the men, all you men, go stand over here, get in line, uh, get ready for your circumcisions.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: because that's what we do as a culture
0: yeah <laughs> right
1: yeah and that would go over like a lead balloon i think for most most other cultures around the world yeah um and then also we have to have sheep and we have to have goats and so forth we have to start sacrificing them and oh the problem is is the mayans they never had sheep the mayans they never had goats the book of mormon talks about having uh goats and sheep because they need those to offer sacrifices it's 43 times in the book of mormon they talk about how they're living the laws of Moses, which was a commandment from God to the Hebrews, but not to Asians.
0: Yeah, interesting. You
1: know, so uh, yeah, the plants and the animals that are mentioned in the Book of Mormon, you know, the, the grapes and wheat and barley, for example, all are, are spoken of quite extensively in the Book of Mormon as being major crops for the Nephites. And yet, uh, grapes, wheat, and barley don't even grow in Central America in any kind of substantial way and, it, and there's no evidence at all that the ancient Mayan culture ever had those plants But so that book gets and to room. your
0: point that a lot of the and we got to end this here soon because I keep getting complaints so, oh your podcasts are too long and I'm sure you have <laughs> things to do we're, we're going to do a part two because I didn't even get to the questions that I wrote down but that I think this is important though so well, that kind of comes been, back
1: this has been a nice discussion to have with you and it's, it's been nice to be able to uh, to, to kind of go into a little more depth on some of these areas that have been so controversial and, and that's going back to one of your earlier questions Kevin and that is that uh you said you know does the LDS you know uh, apologetics community consider me to be controversial and I think the answer is yes because I don't just walk lockstep with them in this idea that Guatemala and and southern Mexico is the promised land of the Lord you know it's uh, not not that there's anything wrong with them But the promised land of the Book of Mormon had limits. It had boundaries. In fact, it said it would be a a mighty Gentile nation. In in the latter days, the lands that the Nephites were walking on and that, that, that they were living on and that their culture resided on, actually, it says that in the last days, that land would be occupied by a new Gentile nation, a mighty Gentile nation above all other nations. They called it the land of liberty eight different times. They said it would be a land of prosperity and security. Does anybody really believe that Guatemala and Mexico are the nations that were being described here rather than the United States of America?
0: So let me ask you, because that, that kind of goes into something I want to ask, and we're going to have to end this soon, but where... So you're saying that a lot of the Book of Mormon took place in the Northeast United States and possibly northeastern Canada.
1: Yeah, I'd say I, I would say well, basically, the uh, the 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 Jaredite portion of the Book of Mormon probably happened further north, maybe up into southeastern Canada, but mostly in the northeastern part of the United States. But all of the Nephite civilization happened basically in the Ohio River Valley and the Mississippi River Valley. There may be a few stragglers here or there, but uh, but by far and away, probably I'd say ninety-eight percent, ninety-nine percent of the entire uh, Nephite uh, civilization happened in the United States of America.
0: What about uh, what what about uh, King Benjamin? Well, before we go there, mm-hmm. where do you think? uh lehigh and his family landed in the america in in the north american continent or the south america or wherever
1: yeah well we don't know for sure but i can tell you some things that that uh that give us some additional pause to think about um what we're what we're thinking basically is around tallahassee florida really um, for several different reasons um it has to do with the the ship um those of you have uh, uh, listeners who are not familiar with the fact that there's a uh, ship called the Phoenicia Expedition that has not only done Lehi's ocean voyage literally sailing from Salala Oman around Africa they were going to go up to the Mediterranean on the western west coast of Africa but instead the winds and the currents took them straight to North America um, they went up the east coast of the United States and then, and then uh, circled up around and came back and then ended up in the Mediterranean that way but uh, just last year, um, or excuse me, it was in, in 2019. Um, the uh, there's a, a well, no, actually, it was la- it was it was last year. It was in 2020. Um, the same ship was basically um, left from the Mediterranean and uh, and 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 actually left from Carthage, um, North Africa, and then um, went past the Canary Islands. And they literally did, and this now this ship is interesting, Kevin, because it's a 600 BC replica ship of, of after the Phoenician people, who basically the Phoenicians were Israelites. Okay, yeah. And uh, and, and bottom line is is that they they sailed this ship, and uh, and last I think it was January, it was about a year ago, January um, end of January, beginning of February. So it's about right now, actually. This ship actually made it to um, America. Okay, and it's actually, right now, it's docked in Florida, but uh, if, if you take the natural ocean currents coming from the Mediterranean out that direction, it takes you south down towards the equator and then, and then circles you back up into basically uh, like, um, uh, I'm saying Puerto Vallarta, but it's actually uh, um, uh, Costa Rica and that area, Okay. Yep. Anyway, but bottom line is, is that uh, so or no, but basically it's just off of the, the the southern tip of Florida. The Phoenician expedition had a really interesting um a- aspect to it because this ship has now done both of the primary voyages that are mentioned in the book of mormon meaning the uh, the, the Lehi family voyage as well as the mulekite voyage so they actually did oh. the, the Lehi voyage basically leaving from uh, salala oman and, uh, and then and then going around africa and ended up basically um, going past, they didn't actually stop, but they actually went right past. They were within three days of making landfall in North America, but instead they sailed up the east coast of the United States and then way up to the north and then back down um, into the Mediterranean through the Rock of Gibraltar area and then over to uh, make a landing in Lebanon. Um, and, and, it, and it all happened in, in about three weeks less than one year, from when they left Saudi Arabia to when they were at Lebanon. So that's pretty interesting. But the one that they just finished up last year, but um, they actually, um, for several years that the ship was uh, sailed around Europe. So they went up to the UK and up into, uh, they, I think they went up into Scandinavia for a little bit. They came back down and then they decided to do another trip, a voyage to America in a 600 BC replica ship. Um, then they started that one off in Carthage in Africa and then they basically—that's uh, Northern Africa. Then they sailed west through the Mediterranean, and then down through the Canary Islands. Actually, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Boyd Tuttle, actually precipitated, 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 participated in the, uh, <laughs> <in the laughs> yep. and participated. And uh, and that one actually only took about three months to go from that from essentially Europe to America. Um, and they came down to uh, in, in, into Puerto Rico area, and then they went up into Florida, and and the and the ship is still sitting there now. Um, a lot of people, yeah, you know, we don't know for sure how the Mulekites came, but if they did come from the Mediterranean side in a 600 BC Phoenician ship, uh, that what these, what this Phoenician expedition is proving is that the Phoenicians, the ancient seafaring people of the of the old world. Um, literally could have made it to easily to America. So that's yeah. a really fascinating aspect. I think we were talking about Florida. And, uh, and so why Florida? Because when you leave Europe and you go out that direction, because the, the Northern Atlantic, well all, all Northern oceans go in a clockwise direction and all the Southern oceans go in a basically counterclockwise rotation. And so if you put into the, that's, that's why Columbus and DeSoto and Cortez and Coronado and all these other early European st- uh, people, when they would leave from Europe, they would typically come in around, um, you know, the Bahamas or, or, or uh, you know, basically the, the, the southeastern part of the United States, because that's the direction that the North Atlantic goes when you leave europe it it, it makes you basically go south and then down around by towards the equator and then back to the west and then it goes up the east coast and then circles back around
0: interesting yeah so why do you think a lot of people think the book of mormon mostly take place in south america then
1: um that's a long (laughs) question i mean it's it's a long answer but the the quick version of that basically is this, um, early in Joseph Smith's day, it was pretty much understood that the Book of Mormon happened in America. I mean, Joseph Smith uh, made several statements. Um, the idea of it happening in Central America came about because there were some people, even in Joseph Smith's day, who believed in more of a what they call the hemispherical model for the Book of Mormon, meaning that, they, that it was the entire Western hemisphere, that they landed basically in South America, they moved up into North America. The narrow neck of land was basically Panama. And that was kind of, you know, if you look on a map today, that seems like a logical explanation. The only yeah. problem is, is that in the Book of Mormon, it said that they could cross the narrow neck of land in a day for a Nephite. Well, nobody's crossing Panama in a day. And especially not even now, but especially back then when it was mostly swamps and so forth, it took them years to, to, uh, to you know, uh, get the panama canal through that area because it's just such a uh a mosquito infested swampy mess down there um that it was they they it took them years to do that and well and also to move basically a mountain's worth of dirt to uh to, to make the cross but but basically so people started to realize that the that the travel distances and time frames described in the book of mormon don't match with the hemispheric model in other words you know alma goes on a on a journey to the to the Lamanites or whatever, they, or he preaches the gospel to different cities. And he's gone for a few weeks or a couple of months, but not for years at a time, which would be required if you're on foot, essentially, or even on a horse traveling, you know, through over thousands of miles. So if it's going to, if the geography is going to got to be uh, limited in scope, um, then where was it limited to? And, uh, and, and, the, the, and this, again, this is a, a huge subject, um, yeah. but basically here in the United States, um, there were people who were promoting the idea that the Native Americans had always been just nothing but ignorant savages, that they had never amounted as a culture to anything more than just hunter-gathering. And uh, of course we now know that that's not true at all. Um, some of the, uh, the the cultures that were here in North America like the Adena culture and the Hopewell culture were every bit as advanced. In fact, we, in fact, probably more so than many of the other cultures around the world when it comes to their road building, city building, uh, use of, uh, of, of um, geometric forms and figures and so forth, the ability to communicate things over long distances, et cetera, are all part of these cultures, but back in, back in the Joseph Smith's day, there was a deliberate attempt to try to downplay how advanced these civilizations were because of what's called American Manifest Destiny doctrine, which is essentially that when the Europeans came over, their, their, their thing was, is that God had sent them here and that the Native American people were kind of just in the way, but it was God's it was the destiny of America to be taken over by these uh by the Europeans, and that the and that the Indians were basically um and the, the, the term um ignorant savages came about by a guy who wrote a a, a book called Ancient Societies. And there was three guys there was John Wesley Powell, Lewis Henry Morgan, and Ephraim George Squires. And those three guys started the Smithsonian, they started the Bureau of Ethnology. And they saw some of these ancient ruins, and they knew that they were there, but they wanted to downplay them for a couple of reasons. And one of those is really fascinating. <laughs> I think I think you like this, Kevin. Um, the The Book of Mormon came out about in the same time frame as uh, John Wesley Powell was living as well, and a lot of these ideas um, began to surface about the same time as Joseph Smith had translated the Book of Mormon into, into a, a book. And, um, and there was a deliberate attempt to, to downplay this history for two reasons, the, the American Manifest Destiny doctrine, which I would just mention, but also because there were two of these guys, John Wesley Powell and Ephraim George Squires, they both um, had fathers who just happened to be Methodist ministers in this place called Palmyra, New York in 1830. Okay. So what are the chances that uh, two Methodist ministers in Palmyra, New York in 1830 had not heard about this upstart young prophet by the name of Joseph Smith and his gold Bible that talks about a highly civilized uh, civilization, basically a highly advanced civilization. Um, And if they could somehow show that the Native Americans had never achieved anything close to civilization then that would basically, not only would it give American, uh, I should say the, uh, the, the European um, settlers and so forth, the ability to basically say, you know what, these Native American people, they're just not as advanced as us. And in fact, uh, Lewis Henry Morgan, who's one of these three guys, when he wrote this book, Ancient Societies, he wrote um, based on the theories of Charles Darwin, which they were contemporaries. In fact, they wrote back and forth to each other several times. There's actual letters between he and Charles Darwin, um, and essentially saying that, the, that all civilizations go through three primary um, advancements. They start off as ignorant savages, then they move up to what they called barbarism, and then up to civilization. And it was in that book, Ancient Societies, written by Lewis Henry Morgan, that, uh, that the idea that the, the Native Americans were just ignorant savages, that's where the term came from, is from that book. And that book became the handbook of instructions for dealing with the Native Americans by the United States government, because these guys started the Bureau of Ethnology and the Smithsonian Institution. And so they had some clout. <laughs> and so they, they were the ones that, that, uh, that coined the term um, ignorant savages and then applied it to the Native Americans. So in doing so, what they were doing is that literally they were undermining the idea of the Book of Mormon that talks about a highly advanced civilization with roads and cities and highways and, and written language and so forth. And it basically um, also fell into the whole idea that that, uh, that Darwin's idea that, that basically some races had not advanced as much as other races and uh, which is of course baloney, but uh, but the bottom line is, is that, uh, you know, Darwin's theory basically was if we came from apes, and apes are basically, um, you know, dark colored, basically black, then the farther away from the black apes you were, the more advanced you had had come. It's an incredibly racist thing. And of course, like I said, I mean, it's, it's, it's completely bogus, but it's what Darwin basically, Darwinian evolution was believing. So the Native Americans having darker skin. Um, were considered to be not as advanced um, genetically as Europeans, which is why they could basically take the Native American people and disallow them from owning land, disallow them from voting, and other things, because they were not as advanced.
0: Very interesting. Now, uh, most of the Book of Mormon, you believe, and I'm starting to believe, you took place in North America, but what about then, the ruins in uh, down in Central America and in Mexico, where they've proven uh, artifacts of the Book of Mormon down there?
1: Um, well, there hasn't been any proving of any artifacts of the Book of Mormon down there. There's there's a, uh, a the, the closest thing that they have is a Tree of Life stone. It's called I- I Zappa, uh Stella Number no. Five, which has a tree on it and has uh, some people depicted around the tree. Um, some people have Try to somehow connect that to the Book of Mormon and Lehi's account in his vision of the Tree of Life, but it's missing major elements of Lehi's vision. Like, for example, there's no great and spacious building. <laughs> you know, oh, okay. That's it, a pretty major part of Lehi's. And, and in fact, uh, a lot of the scholars, even the, the, those who have been promoting Central America, now pretty much reject the idea that that, that has anything to do with Lehi's dream. Almost every ancient you know culture had a tree of life motif obviously trees were important to people from the very beginning of time and so keep in uh, mind
0: he also had that dream before he came to america
1: yeah exactly that's before he got here yeah so so the bottom line is is that there, there there's not a single solitary uh artifact anywhere in central america that 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 would positively be a Book of Mormon artifact. In fact, um, a couple of things about that, the language, for example, the Mayan language, is that the the glyph system that you see on the Mayan um, walls and on their edifices and things are basically the same type of a glyph system that you found in Laos and Cambodia, East Asian writings and have absolutely nothing to do with Hebrew or, uh, or, or Phoenician. Basically, the two of them are very similar to each other, um, and, or, or Egyptian. I mean, if you take a look at the glyphs there in Central America, they don't look anything like the, uh, the glyph systems. Or the, I should say the, uh, they're not even glyphs, but the, the, uh, the, the writing systems of the Egyptians. They look very, very different. They're completely unrelated. Um, and the other thing is, is that in Central America, you have writings all over the place on almost every wall and every side of every edifice, <laughs> so there's glyphs uh, depicting all kinds of different things and saying, you know, in their language, different things, but in the, in the Book of Mormon, the Nephites were the only ones that had a written language, apparently the Lamanites had lost their language to, to a large extent, and the Nephites were the ones writing stuff down. They said it was in Reformed Egyptian or Hebrew, and, um, and there's been absolutely no Hebrew language of any si- type or form ever found in Central America. Um, but, the, uh, but the point I'm trying to make here is that the, that the Book of Mormon Nephites complained, actually the prophets of the Book of Mormon complained that, uh, that their language was going to become obsolete because the Lamanites were absolutely bound and determined to destroy all of their history. All, all evidence that the Nephites ever existed. So after the Nephites were wiped out, the Lamanites were hunting down anybody or any, anything that had the written language on it, which is why they had to hide the plates. So the, the, the peoples of the Book of Mormon, you wouldn't expect to find their language all over everything because the Lamanites were bound and determined to wipe it out. that make sense?
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. Now, a couple more questions on the podcast here. What do you think the ship looked like that Lehi's family sailed on? Because I imagine it being pretty big, maybe three stories to fit everybody in there and all the food and such.
1: Well, we we know there's probably between 30 and maybe up to 50 people um, based on how they, they, they wandered in the wilderness for about eight years. They had some children there, but we we know most of the people who were there. There may have been a few others, and there could have been other people that they might have picked up along the way. It's possible. We don't, although they're not ever mentioned. Um, but uh, but the Phoenician expedition was based off of actual ships. So in the mud of the Mediterranean Sea, over the last 15 years, there's been three ancient Phoenician ships. And the reason why Phoenicians are important is because Phoenicia, or Sidon, is uh, was located essentially. Um, just west of Israel today, in what is now basically uh, Lebanon area. Okay. So, so the Phoenicians were the great ocean farers. They were the great, um, you know, seafarers of the of the ancient oceans, um, and they they had routes all over the world that they were doing in these ships. Well, since they found sections of these ships in the in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, buried in the mud essentially, so it preserved them. We now know exactly what those ships uh, uh, look like, essentially. And they, we, you know, not, they weren't entire ships, but they were segments. There were portions of ships that had been broken up or sank or whatever. And so we know what kind of wood they were using. We know what kind of join, jointing of the woods they were doing and how they were sealing the ships. We knew about the size of typically about 60 feet long. Um, really only two, two stories high. There's, just, there's the, uh, the, inner, the inner part of the ship and then there's the ship deck. There it wouldn't be three stories tall. Um, although they could, there's enough room in the very bottom of it. You could actually put, you know, numerous, you know, bunk beds, for example, if you if you wanted to do that. There's probably about uh, ten or fifteen feet um, in the in the bottom level, and then about then you just have the deck, and a, essentially about a three or four foot railing around the deck on the upper level. Um, so there would be quite a bit of room for people, you know, if you uh, if you made some you know, some bunk bed kind of things. Um, as far as their food and so forth, it takes a lot of ballast. Actually, another thing I, I learned about is they had to put uh, they put a lot of iron. Um, the Phoenicians would actually use iron, iron um, cannonballs a lot of times oh. in the bottom of their ships because you see these ships were different than other ships um, that came around, uh, you know, maybe 10 or 1100 AD. They, these ships had round bottoms. In other words, the hull of the ship was rounded, whereas about 1100 AD shipbuilding basically took a major change and actually began to put what they call a deep keel. So the, 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 uh, the hull of the ship kind of forms almost like an S shape. So it comes down and it, and it makes a big, a big deep keel. So this keel goes real deep in the water. The reason for that is so they can tack against the winds. Because if you get sideways to the wind in one of these uh, Phoenician ships, which were had just the round bottom, it had the tendency to just blow the ship over sideways rather than making it, uh, um, you know, skim through the water, like it like having a rudder, a, a deep rudder in the water, kind of. So, uh, so these Phoenician ships, they because they had that uh, that rounded hull design, and they were being built as much as uh, 600 BC, around Lehi's time frame. This is the the type of ship that was most likely, we, we know that they uh, didn't build an aircraft carrier or a hydrofoil, we know it wasn't a powered ship. We know it was made out of wood. So basically what we're looking at is a wooden sailing ship, which is why the Phoenicia expedition is such a, a, a good um, uh, substitute, if you will, for, uh, for Lehi's ship. Now, Lehi, nephi was instructed that he would build he should build the ship not after the manner of men it says it wasn't built after the manner of men um but it gives kind of the indication that what he's talking about is the, the way the ship was constructed um you know he, he wasn't building a spaceship <laughs> or uh-huh. you know he's building a wooden sailing ship and it was unlike the uh, the jaredite boats because the Jaredite ships were tight like into a dish and uh, we don't know exactly what that means or what that looks like but theirs would have been more like a submarine it kind of sounds like to me because they said it would go down deep in the water and it would come up they'd have to unstop the hole to get air every now and again uh, whereas Lehi's you know, group this the you know, Nephi ship basically seemed like a fairly normal you know uh, wooden sailing ship and as soon as it was as soon said as it was specifically blown before the winds, which tells you that they're taking advantage of the sails taking advantage of of uh you know a wind blown ship Whereas Jaredites, yeah. Jaredites probably didn't have sails, they were more like barges they just were controlled by the ocean currents and wherever God took them
0: yeah, it makes you wonder if the they put actual sails on the ship uh lehi Nephi if they actually put sails like you see on a sailboat
1: yeah well all the phoenician ships did and lehi, oh, okay. and, his have, lehi and his family would have certainly seen the phoenician ships you know or, or at least heard about them especially being in from israel they've been right there by the coast they would have probably have seen what a what a ship looks like which i think is part of the reason why when nephi went up to the mountain and got the commandment from the lord to, to build a ship and he came back and told his brothers the first thing out of his brother's mouths were were uh, not uh, Nephi. Um, what's a ship? Yeah. They, they knew what a ship was. And he said, our brother's crazy because he thinks he's going to build a ship, which kind of gives you some idea that they had some inkling as to what it's going to take to build a
0: ship. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just a couple more questions and I'll get you out of here. Um, it says in the Book of Mormon that they ate raw meat. Do you think yeah. that they probably smoked it before they actually took it on? Because I don't know about you, raw meat is <laughs> disgusting.
1: Well, that's another really interesting aspect of it. Um, at the time, I think it says that in Omni, in the Book of Mormon, that they ate nothing but raw meat. And, uh, and by this point in time, there were hundreds of thousands of people, which, which, uh, which is, again, problematic if the Book of Mormon uh, you know, for those who espouse this a Central American idea for the Book of Mormon, because if you have hundreds of thousands of people and they're eating nothing but raw meat, what in the world are they eating down there in Central America? Because there's no animals, there's no animal population down there that could support hundreds of thousands of people eating nothing but raw meat. I mean, you know, like I, I like I like to joke about it, saying you know that's a lot of monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, I, and I, I find remember, that hard.
0: I would think that they would pack a lot of fruits and vegetables with them.
1: Well, but, but that's not what this says. It says that they yeah. ate nothing but raw meat. Yeah. Now, a couple of quick things about that. Number one is um, what ancient civilization have you ever heard of that ate nothing but raw meat? That's pretty rare. Yes, it is. So you have to have a massive um, amount of, of uh, animals to be able to support a big population like that. The other reason, the other thing is, is why would they not be eating any vegetables and, and the gardening and that kind of stuff? Because, yeah, you know, there's nowhere in the Book of Mormon that gives any indication that Lamanites were gardening.
0: No, it doesn't. It does talk about the Nephites tilling their garden, but that was after right. they got to America.
1: Right, right. But even after they get yep. to America, the Lamanites they, they they said they were a wild and ferocious people, full of idolatry and so forth, and they yes. wandered about living in tents and eating nothing but raw meat. Now, let me ask a quick question. Why would they be wandering about? Why wouldn't they just do like the Nephites and just basically settle down into a land and actually have cities?
0: Could it be would that they were it? kicked out of their lands by the Nephites? Well, but they could
1: have built, like, they had their own lands. Why, didn't, wh- why don't you hear really about any big uh, Lamanite cities? In fact, even when they take over the Nephite cities, oftentimes they just abandoned the cities and left and went back to their own ways. And it says that they were living in tents yes well that 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 sounds to me like an almost perfect description of the plains indians Hmm. interesting why were they wandering about because they were following the buffalo herds if you're following the buffalo herds which move around because of migrations and by the way in the book of Mormon, it specifically talks about uh migrating animals migrating beasts said so that they that they uh, they followed the course of the beasts and 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 ate those that fell by the way. It also talks about the, uh, the, the some of the beasts came from the land northward looking for food. Well, these are migrating beasts, and the only reason why beasts migrate in the first place is because of changing weather patterns, basically winter to summer or or uh, you know dry to you know to wet seasons. And there are no migrating beasts in Central America. but we have, in here in North America, we have one of the greatest, uh, other than Africa, probably the greatest migration and some of the largest migrating beasts in the world. They're called buffalo. Yes. They're bison.
0: And they're good too.
1: And the, yeah, they're good. And a and bull <laughs> bison, waiting uh, at 1,600 to 1,800 pounds of meat, will feed a lot of people. And so if you go back to the, the scripture, basically, so they're wandering about in tents, also known as teepees. They didn't eat, they didn't eat vegetables because they don't they, you can't garden and be wanderers. You have to either do one or the other. If you're going to be gardening, then you have to be there all summer long to garden. But yes. if you're following the course of the beast, like the Lamanites were described in, in, in amazing detail in the Book of Mormon, that you, you can't grow vegetables and still follow the herds, follow the buffalo herds. So the entire civilization began to be dependent upon these buffalo herds. And they actually had all the food, uh, they, every, everything that they needed to live was provided by either the earth or the buffalo. So they would use the buffalo chips to burn as fire. They would use their hides to make their tents and their, their, their homes basically and their teepees. They would use their meat and they didn't hardly ever cook it. As far as we know, they cut it into strips and hung it in the wind to dry I don't know that they smoked it, as as your question was talking about. I mean, they could have smoked it, but there's no real reason to. They just dried it in the wind, and they ate it. And today we call that stuff jerky.
0: Yes. So they were eating. Same thing that the pirates ate, by the way.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I mean, this is this is not uh, you know rocket science here. It's basically it's it's survival. But, then they, but the Lamanites actually had a pretty good thing going for them. As long as they kept the, as long as the buffalo herds existed, they were going to be just fine as a civilization. They just had to be able to wander around um, and follow the, the, the course of the beasts. And they had everything that they needed.
0: You wonder really though good. how they stayed healthy because if you know anything about nutrition, you need vegetables and fruits as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, um, yeah, you know, it's interesting because a lot of Native American people um, have have some difficulty digesting some of those kinds of things. Really? But uh, but uh, but that but it seems like that uh, meat is one of those things, um, especially hormone-free meat. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, well, it's not hormone-free, but it's not not added hormones, not synthetic hormones, and so yes. forth. Yes. But. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm sure that they would gather, you know, whatever kinds of other um, plants and so forth that they would find along the way and eat those things. But, uh, but it's interesting because it it almost exactly matches what the Plains Indians did, but it doesn't match in any way, shape or form the Mayans.
0: By the way, the Plains Indians, are they in Montana? Because there is a Plains Montana here. Is that what they were at? Is that where they're at now? um
1: i'm not sure where the term plains came from for there in montana but the plains indians were on the on the 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 plains of the united states basically that's like yeah between the rocky mountains and the appalachian mountains are are considered the uh you know the plains basically actually
0: that would make sense because billings where i'm at is actually right on the edge of the plains yeah yeah. So so that makes sense
1: they would have been there and and also the sioux and the cheyenne and the blackfoot all were in these uh in this north not 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 far west, but basically the uh, the western would be considered the western part of the United States and the northern part of it. So Idaho, Utah, uh, Montana, Wyoming, uh, even into uh, you know uh, Nebraska and so forth. That all would be considered part of the plains, if you will. Interesting. So, so that makes sense. What they were eating. And the Book of Mormon is pretty clear about that. Yeah. Um, of course, the Nephites looked down their nose at the Lamanites for basically being meat eaters, you know, well, whereas, they were, whereas they were agricultural, they were farmers, they were more sedentary, and, and that's why they could have cities. It's interesting that even yeah. when the Lamanites took over Nephite cities, they, they pretty much didn't stay there, they abandoned those cities and left anyway, because they, a, couldn't, they weren't um, farmers, they didn't know how to farm.
0: Yeah, I heard a rumor, and I have reasons to doubt this. I heard a rumor, though, that in the Book of Mormon times, they actually had airplanes. Is that? I have a hard time believing that one.
1: Yeah, I I don't see any indication of that in the Book of Mormon. What
0: did the the, highways look like? Uh, Because did they look like the modern highways of today?
1: Um, Well, clearly, they didn't have, you know, concrete and uh, steel overpasses and so forth. But uh, I can it does tell mention
0: cement in the Book of Mormon, though, several times. Yes,
1: it does. Yes, it does. Now, and that's interesting because in Helaman, it talks about the, the use of cement. They said that um, because the people had been become so numerous that they had basically used up all the trees, he says, therefore, we became expert in the use of cement. And they made homes out mm-hmm. of cement. Now, when it talks about cement, it doesn't necessarily mean Portland cement. It means some kind of a a, a, a a cement-like or maybe even a stucco-like exterior coating, possibly, um, because they didn't have big trees where they could get logs. They, apparently, they had logged the area, which which kind of sounds like, to me, how would you run out of trees if you lived in a tropical rainforest?
0: Good point. Of
1: Central America. But they somehow ran out of trees. Now, it also says in Helium they, that they... He, he describes even that he says their temples their homes their synagogues and all manner of buildings were built out of timbers and they only went they only they only resorted to cement when they ran out of timbers um now it, it also specifically says that their temples were made out of timbers and he says that, and if any if any tree should spring up upon the face of the land they would basically uh tend to it or take care of it until it could grow up, until they could have timbers to build their houses and their synagogues and their temples. Why are we even looking for uh stone pyramids? There's not a single reference anywhere in the Book of Mormon to any stone buildings whatsoever. In fact, the only the only thing made out of stone that they that they do mention is walls of stone that they're made. And now if we if we take that understanding, first off looking for temples that are not made out of stone. But are instead are made out of wood, like the Book of Mormon says. And if we and if we understand um, that that uh, you know trees that are in the uh, midwestern part of the United States are typically hardwoods, hardwood varieties, hardwood trees, hardwood species, and it's going to take fifty to sixty years for an average, you know, uh, a, a maple or an oak or whatever kind of tree that are hardwood trees to grow to maturity so, yeah. so they, they literally would be a, a generation and a half or, or two generations before they would be able to have trees big enough to harvest and uh, that's why they resorted to cement so what do we find here as far as highways and cement in North America is one of the big questions that people ask all the time and the answer to that is just absolutely it's astounding first off um, what what did the highways look at uh, look like Kevin the the um, the highways, basically, that are mentioned in the Book of Mormon were basically uh, trails, if you will, or, or you know, roadways to get from one place to another. <laughs> Many people have not heard of the what they call the Great Hopewell Road, which extends from Chillicothe, Ohio, down to uh, up to Newark, Ohio. Chillicothe, Ohio being... Um, kind of south and west, and then, and then Newark, Ohio, being where it's located today, which is north and east of there. This, this particular road, they call it the Great Hopewell Road because it was over 60 miles long. But the interesting thing about it, it was straight as an arrow. Literally, I mean, if you understand the curvature of the Earth, you can only see about 12 miles before you can't see any further because the Earth is curving away from you, right? Yeah. And yet, even by satellite... This road was was dead on straight. I mean, it was just as straight as an arrow, even by satellite, for sixty miles. It was also interesting in that it was leveled. In other words, they 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 leveled the entire road from over sixty miles. It was a level road. And the, interesting. And the really really fascinating thing was, is it was two hundred feet wide. Wow! Which today, is wide as 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 wide as a uh, Boeing, you know, seven forty seven. Um, you know, airport uh, takeoff, you know, runway, which like which maybe that maybe that's what led to somebody believing that they had airplanes.
0: <laughs> Could be. I, I don't even think the highways today are that wide, are they?
1: No, not, to, not 200 feet. Well, some of the highways like here in Utah when you have you know six lanes in each direction or you get into California or some Arizona or some big places like that, they can get 200 feet wide, but it's pretty rare and there's there's really no one. Um, I mean, you look at the great wall of China, I mean that, you know, the top of that wall is typically about 25 to 30 feet wide. So this yeah. is, you know, you know, 10 times that wide. And, uh, but they were level, they were leveled. They weren't elevated necessarily. I mean, they had filled in gullies and, and ditches and so forth, you know, um, but they, but they, they weren't elevated highways, but they were, they had basically an earth berm about six feet high, the six to eight feet high on either side. And that's what demarcated the road. Now, there was, we know that they had roads between the cities because of things like LIDAR. You can see compaction, where the ancient people would walk all the time. If they had a pathway, it actually compacts the earth, and you can actually see that in some, uh, what they call remote sensing technologies, like uh, GPR and, and, uh, and so forth. But anyway, so you can see some of the places where they traveled, but, uh, but they had highways. Um, the other thing that you asked about was the cement. In several places, like in, for example, Fort Ancient in Ohio, it's a it's a hilltop fortification. Just, I mean, it matches every description of the Nephites' uh, place of refuge, or the place of resort. What they they call them, if they if they got attacked by the Lamanites, they would all leave their farmland down in the valley and go up to these places of resort. And Fort Ancient is one of those places. Um, And Fort Ancient, they were doing uh, digs and in the area there, and also around uh, um, the Paint Valley in Ohio. Uh, there's all these these uh, geometric fortifications, gigantic geometric, um, they, they don't have a different term for them, so they just call them cities. But like, for example, in Newark, Ohio, there was a, a, a gigantic circle that's connected to a gigantic square, which is connected to a gigantic octagon, which is connected to another great big circle. Um, actually, it's the entire Plan of salvation laid out in earthen geometric forms. That uh, there's actually everything is in its right sequence and everything. I mean, it's just I wish I had an hour to tell you about that. But yeah, basically, that there is the plan of salvation. Is only the restored gospel of Jesus Christ knows it, and it has every aspect of the plan of salvation um, embedded into these gigantic earthworks, and it creates a temple site that is almost four square miles in extent. In other words, it's two miles by two miles square, and uh, basically, and has uh, has these massive features. But in there, they found burials um, in some of these places. And the burials were covered with a coating about two, two feet thick that would be considered. And they, in fact, they even call it, uh, archaeologically, they call it Hopewell cement or Hopewell concrete. And, it, and they had to use jackhammers to get through it to get down into the, the lower areas of these mounds with this, with this two foot thick coating of cement. Um, now, now people say, well, why don't we find cities of cement today in the heartland of America? And the answer to that is pretty simple. Um, why do we have to rebuild uh, concrete overpasses every 15 or 20 years? Because cement does not last long when it's exposed to the elements. So the cement is only going to last if it's actually buried under under at least a, a couple of feet of dirt so it gets below the frost line because cement is very porous, water gets into the cement, and then as it freezes and thaws, freezes and thaws, that freeze-thaw cycling will cause the cement to basically break up and crack and break, and, and that's why I need to replace my concrete uh, in front of my house <laughs> because over yeah. the course of 40 years it's broken up into a mess. Now I'm going to have it all replaced and refinished at some point because concrete does not last well on the surface, and so that's what if, if there was any concrete homes, they would have not lasted for more than maybe fifty or sixty years, and definitely not over you know the course of two thousand years.
0: Yeah, okay, so we're going to go off topic here. Why do you think Lehman and Lemuel came to America? because my understanding. According to scholars, they were well in their early twenties, I guess. Mm-hmm. So technically, they could have just said, "I, no, I'm not coming." And according to our law here in the states and many other places around the world, if you're 18, you're an adult. Why? Do, what do you think made Laman and Lemuel came come as bitter as they were about coming?
1: <laughs> well. Well, I don't ever you know, uh, you know questions like this make, make me kind of uncomfortable because of the fact that uh, no one should presume to know why somebody does what they do because there, there'd be reasons that we are beyond our even comprehension but I can but just to take a stab at it for a second. number one is that our culture and our ways are not those of the Hebrews. Um, you know, back in back in the ancient of days, you stuck together as a family above all else. Um, family was the only ones that you could really completely trust, um, and even then, sometimes not. <laughs> you know,
0: yeah.
1: Um, but uh, but pr- protection was in numbers, and so larger families with larger numbers had greater protection and had a tendency to survive longer. So I, I think it might have been a situation where Laman and Lemuel, even though they uh, they they may have murmured, it says that they murmured, but I think that they probably. Well, you know, they 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 had heard about because just you know what, 120 years before the the uh, the city of Jerusalem got destroyed, the ten tribes had been taken over and, and destroyed and, and and driven off their lands just barely to the north of them, right? When the Assyrians came in at 722 BC, they wiped them out and they, and they and they and they then they they dispersed the ten northern tribes, so they had to have known known about that because that was only 120 years before them, so I'm sure that was being passed down and passed down, you know, that you don't mess with God, basically, on this promised land. They could probably see that the, that the, that the southern tribes were becoming more and more secularized and less and less uh, religious. Although, uh, was it King Zedekiah that basically started to kind of uh, reinforce the laws of Moses? They'd gotten really lax about it, and I think they started to uh, reinforce the laws of Moses more, so in Lehi's time frame, when he grew up, he actually grew up more of a of a, uh, a religious based society. And he kind of was involved with that, maybe as, as more. Um, but that, but basically, all the Jews are taught from their from their childhood to respect their elders and to especially respect their fathers, their patriarchs. And if that's the case, then Lamech and Lemuel, even though they may have disagreed, didn't want to go. Um, they also would would have a tendency because of their culture to just obey their father even though they may not have wanted to go and it may not have been until after they got married and realized that hey we you know we're full adults here now and we can you know we don't have to do this um but that was after they had gone back and got Ishmael's family and got wives and and you know started to have families of their own so that might have made them uh, feel like the time time to get out of the basement and grow up and you know, become more independent and that might have been part of the reason why they were to some extent rebelling but the other thing is is that uh, why would they ever get on a ship just to sail off into who knows what when you get on the edge of the sea and you can't see land on the other side i mean that's got to be I, I've had yeah that they didn't have
0: people. to do that either
1: right so what caused them to go and i think that the answer to that is i think that they knew about the phoenicians and the Phoenicians were making circumnavigations of Africa from the Mediterranean around Africa to India and Saudi Arabia and back, and and they've been doing that for more than a hundred years, you know, before Lehi's timeframe. Or excuse me, well, well, not well, yeah, for, um, yeah, for, around Lehi's timeframe, I should say. And so they may actually have known that if they get on board of a ship, there's a chance that they might end up back in. The Mediterranean interesting that the Phoenicians were already making those kind of voyages and plus that I mean I, I don't think that they thought their dad was a liar they call him a visionary man you know, yeah they thought he's he kind of kind of nuts but I don't think that they thought he was a liar and so when he told them that they were going to go to a promised land and that, that this is a promised land above all other lands and so forth I think that they probably believed him so, I, like I said, I, I hate to speculate about why Laman and Lemuel did what they did and, and how they were treated, but they but they also, I mean, let's face it, they experienced some miracles. I mean, they got the heck shocked out of them at <laughs> you know, one point in time when they murmured against Nephi about building the ship. You know, they they also saw the uh, the ocean calmed when they tied Nephi up while on the ship, which by the way has an interesting uh, correlation with the uh, the Phoenicia expedition because when oh. it left when it left from Salalah, Oman sailed down along the east coast of africa in fact they went right past the uh, the comoros islands which is interesting because the word comoros does that sound like any kind of a place name in the book of mormon yes sounds a little bit like camora comoros yes. right what's fascinating yep. though is that comora uh, um well, comoros also has a capital city oh and uh, you know what the capital city is called? No. It's I'll, I'll just spell it for you. It's spelled M O R O N I. It's oh. Moroni, Moroni. Yeah. And we would call it Moroni.
0: Moroni. Yep.
1: Isn't it interesting?
0: It is interesting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so what? So there's there's a Camora and a Moroni, basically as they as there's are as they're sailing south, um, and they, they could have easily stopped there, and there's no indication that they stopped. But there's no indication that they didn't stop either. In other words, it, it never says that we did sail to the promised land without stopping. You know, we uh, they they, they, just, they set sail and it says you know, they, they they sailed for many days, and then they basically arrived at the promised land. If they sailed down the east coast of Africa, and 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 actually followed the natural currents there, okay, because um, you have to understand the Indian Ocean is a counter rotating ocean so if they if you throw a stick in the water in Saudi Arabia it's going to go down the east coast of Africa until interesting it gets down, until it gets down towards the south pole and then it will make a, a bend and go around to the east and come back up you know um, and, and make a circle so uh, so they're literally just in the natural currents of the ocean but this is the interesting uh, thing that's that's uh, I wanted to point out when the Phoenicia ship got down to basically the, the, uh, the Cape of Good Hope, which is the southern tip of, of Africa, they got into a huge storm. And, and uh, for you know, a couple of days, they were, they were literally were driven back upon the water. Now, in, in, in the, uh, the Book of Mormon account, they said they were driven back upon the waters for three days. Um, the Phoenician experienced a storm that got so violent that there were 50-foot waves, and they're in a 60-foot-long ship. Oh,
0: so my gosh.
1: It's almost a work death work. sentence. And, they, and the, 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 it actually tore the mainsail. Uh, it just tore it apart. Um, and uh, they were basically just, just floundering around in the ocean. But then literally, like a day later, the, the, the storm passed, and the oceans all calmed back down. And there was just a kind of just a very light breeze. And they were, and, and they could see that they were actually sailing west around the, the Cape of Good Hope. So they're sailing west. But then they, they, their eyes were popping when they looked at their GPS. and The GPS actually indicated that they, were, they were sailing, but they were sailing in the opposite direction as the sails were, were showing. And we go, what? What the heck? Something's wrong with the GPS. Because we can clearly see the sails are billowing out this direction although it wasn't billowing a lot because it was pretty pretty calm. it was, wasn't much wind at all. And then they finally realized that they had, they had sailed out of the Indian Ocean current and into the Southern Atlantic current. And the Southern Atlantic current was actually taking them um, to the, they, they thought that they were sailing um, to the West, but instead they were kind of going to the East because they'd actually sailed into the Southern Atlantic. So basically it's an interesting uh, correlation between the Book of Mormon uh, account of lehi's ocean voyage and the uh, and the Phoenician voyage
0: yeah now that the storm with the venetian voyage actually lasts for three days like it did in the book of mormon
1: um no it didn't
0: okay but it, was, but it
1: was bad enough that it rocked it rocked them pretty good i mean obviously it was i mean if you're in a small little ship like that you're just being tossed left and right and they were just all just kind of hanging on to their, and, and, and some of them were just literally strapped themselves into their hammocks. And just as the ship would toss and roll and everything else, they were just. Yeah. I, my only hope
0: would be, I wouldn't be on the deck with a four foot railing. Or I'd be bound yeah. to fall overboard, never return. Definitely.
1: Well, they definitely would tie themselves. They had big belts and so forth. They would tie themselves off to uh, different things. It actually uh, got so violent, it actually cracked the main sail. Um, And they had to basically uh, put rope all around it. It just cracked it. It didn't break it off, but it did crack the main, the main uh, mast. And uh, they had to wrap it with, you know, inch and a half or two foot, two inch thick uh, rope to kind of reinforce it during the rest of the voyage. So, yeah. So it's interesting how how the, the correspondences here are just absolutely astounding.
0: Absolutely. You wonder though if if uh, I mean obviously today with modern technology you could probably go just the opposite of the current with a powerful a powerful motor on your ship.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But 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 they, but they still use the, the natural currents. I mean if you take a look at the shipping lanes and so forth, they don't nobody wants to go against the currents because that just uses fuel unnecessarily. So most most shipping lanes and so forth are taking advantage of the natural ocean currents to give them additional, yeah. you know, mileage to their ships.
0: Yep. Well, uh, just a few more questions. Do you yeah. have a calling? And if so, what is it?
1: Um, I've had numerous callings and from lots of different, uh, things. Well, what is your current in- calling? Uh, currently I'm basically, uh, a little bit put out to pasture because we're in the process of moving. so.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Where are you moving not, to, not if you don't mind? Bed, uh, if you Sunday don't mind Sunday announcing.
1: School Sunday school president and so forth uh, for a number of years. I've been on, you know, on emer- our emergency preparedness thing for a long time, and in the activities committee back when we had that. uh Before that, and so forth, but uh I was the young men's president of our stake, and we're not. But, excuse me, the young men's president of our ward, and I was in the young men's presidency of the stake for few years as well but uh, right now we are in the process of uh of moving so
0: okay they
1: let us kind of uh, be put out the pasture for a little bit
0: interesting <laughs> where are you moving to um
1: to uh sand
0: pete county oh that and is utah. a nice area
1: yeah that is the, a nice area the place in between mount pleasant and uh and fairview utah it's Beautiful area. And the I only thing the I would
0: not like about that area is mm-hmm. me being a blind person. It would be awfully hard to get out of that area if I needed to go somewhere, unless I knew someone who could drive me, That's at true. least to a shuttle on I where I-15 is. I fifteen. As I guess the further the closest place would probably be Fillmore.
1: Um, well, actually, probably if, you, if the uh, the closest place to get to from there is a. Uh, probably about a twenty-minute drive from Fairview to the west, over to what's called uh, Moroni, <laughs> and then and then past the place called Fountain Green, then through uh, the, the, there's a canyon there that just comes out at that essentially Nephi area.
0: Oh yeah, well I'm talking about the Salt Lake Express shuttle. It doesn't go. It only goes north and south from Salt Lake right. to Las Vegas. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, but that but that's that would get you from uh, in, in twenty minutes you could be on I fifteen.
0: Oh, okay. I know they do stop in Nephi, though. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Yeah, yep. uh, that—that's a really good area. I love that area. I think you'll be pretty safe there. I'll ask you some more questions about it off the podcast because anyway, uh, real quick here, last question, and then uh, stay with me here if you don't mind. I want to ask you some questions when we're done. What okay. do you like about being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints? <laughs>
1: Well, what is there not to like about it? I mean, basically, we have the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been so blessed to have the sacrifices of so many people who have uh, risked life and limb and actually given their lives in many cases so that we can have the truths that we have in these, these amazing scriptures that we have. Uh, I am so grateful for Joseph Smith and, and his sacrifices and what he did to, uh, to bring to pass the restoration of Christ's actual gospel. But uh, most mostly, I want to, I would like to uh, express my uh, appreciation to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for uh, for His sacrifice and His being willing to come down and, and offer Himself for us, and so that we can, you know, have our our sins remitted. I I think the direction that the church and the gospel give us is so blessed. I mean, I look at uh, how so so many other friends of mine and so forth that. How their families flounder when they when they lose hold of that iron rod, basically yep. the the word of God. Um, that their lives are just not blessed. I mean, when I say not blessed, meaning you know they just don't have that that uh, that feeling of of um, of knowing that they're doing the right things for the right reasons. And uh, and there's there's certain principles upon which if we act if we do them then we'll be blessed and if you refute those or you don't do those things then then you have no promise and you can see that in so many times the lives of the people who um you know i, I know so many people that have you know one son or daughter that's that, you know, that's fully engaged in the church and and uh, and, and involved and believes and other sons and daughters don't. And you'll just see that in general, their, their lives are happier, they have better relationships, more, um, you know, more opportunities for their family to grow and develop. They, uh, their kids tend to turn out to be uh, less delinquent <laughs> and uh, better citizens of the, of the nation and of the world. Um, my personal feeling is, is I am so grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ in my life, and I, um, I've I've known it's true um, for many many years. i I would have to say I'm a convert to the church, although I was raised from my very birth on up with with wonderful parents who were active in the church and taught me the principles of the gospel throughout my entire life. I was able to uh, to to live in an amazing ward up in Cache Valley, Utah, and Logan, Utah. Shout out to Young Ward, Utah. Yeah, um, where I where I, I knew some of the great, just amazing individuals, great people. This ward was just filled with with wonderful farmers and ranchers and and um, and, you know, people who worked up at Utah State University like my dad did or other 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 professions. But uh, we, we, we jokingly called it uh, it was called Young Ward, but it was actually uh, Jensenville and Olsonville. Couple of Scandinavian families had moved into the area and basically um, had lots of posterity, and uh, they owned most of the land area in our ward boundaries. And they took us in, even though we were Meldrums and weren't part of their clan. Basically, we uh, they took us in and treated us like their own, and and um, I'll be forever grateful for the privilege of having grown up in what I would consider to be the ultimate. Latter-day Saint um, ward. Yeah, I mean, we just did all kinds of activities together and uh, all, of the, all of the men and women in the ward that I can think of were, were solid, upright, upstanding citizens of our, of our state and of, our, of the county and the city and so forth that we live just outside of. And uh, they, they treated each other with dignity and respect. They loved each other. They served each other. It was about as close to a, a, I can think of as uh, heaven on earth.
0: Not like so that grateful. song by Belinda Carlisle, You Make Heaven a Place on Earth.
1: Exactly like that. That's <laughs> that's what for you're she was do.
0: talking about her boyfriend, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, but <laughs> this was Young Warden, Utah, man. I tell you what,
1: it's a <laughs> it's a beautiful place to be raised up, and I feel like I uh, won the lottery, you know, the the world lottery when it when it comes down to uh being born into in, in such goodly parents in such a good place and with the gospel in my life. And um, I'll forever be appreciative of that fact.
0: All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for being on the podcast. We appreciate you coming on. We'll do this again sometime. This was a, a lot of fun, actually.
1: Yeah, well, I said, we covered a lot of ground. We did, but that's okay. <laughs> There's a you whole know, lot more ground to cover.
0: I mean, a lot of people you know, criticize me. Oh, your podcasts are too long. Yeah, that's because we have a lot of ground to cover. Go back and listen to my other podcasts. We have a lot to cover.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's uh, you know, if you want the five five minute versions, then uh, you can go to uh, um, you know, the, the the nightly news and watch it. Yep. uh Watch it in, in, in thirty second increments. But what you're going to find there is not really worth the thirty seconds that it takes to listen to it.
0: Nope. All right, folks, we will talk to you later.